continue on our journey in First and Second Peter. Uh, that song right there, it'd be hard to uh, find a song that better sang or preached the verses that were in uh, this morning because it lays it right out there. We're pilgrims, uh, we are strangers, we are tempted to sway, and these verses here uh, that we're looking at, these two verses, and I'll mention it later, they kind of summarize a bit the rest of the book. This is the direction that Peter is going to be going in. Uh, and the idea here is godly living. Uh, I put here, there's a big difference between a suggestion and a command. And there's a real danger in mixing the two up. Uh, when I was at, at Tech, Virginia Tech, I took a decent amount of history classes. Uh, actually, I was one class away from having a history minor. But uh, being an overachiever, I didn't do that. Uh, focus in on that horticulture degree. I can't get distracted from flowers, right? So, uh, but either way, as you look at history and specifically uh, different wars and battles, there's instances when that mistake of viewing something as a suggestion instead of a command uh, changes the scope of a single battle and oftentimes can change the scope of a whole war. Uh, I was in a varying classes, so from you talk about every war that's been fought, and I was in one uh, in regard to our civil war that took place. And I remember the teacher teaching about a specific battle and the commander of the whole army said to one of his generals, occupy that hill. Now, in the culture that they had in their army, uh, this commander uh, oftentimes would make more suggestive type commands. He wanted them to take the hill, but he, he rarely followed up with that stern go do this now because I'm in charge. He just assumed that people would do it. The general decided not to occupy the hill. No one was on the hill at the time when they showed up. Well, as you read that battle, you read about how many soldiers died trying to take a hill that they could have occupied for free. Actually, the trying or the attempting to take that hill changed the whole scope of that battle. Uh, that was what would have turned that battle for the other side. And actually, that battle ended up being the turning point of the complete war, all because one general said this is a suggestion in his mind instead of seeing it as a command. You see, there's a big difference between suggestion and command and a real danger when we mix the two. I say that because as believers, we often make that mistake with Scripture. We oftentimes will come to Scripture and we'll look at it and think, that's a good suggestion for me. I, I could or could not do that. And I, I mentioned it's to our detriment and to our destruction. Uh, Peter in verses 11 and 12 is basically summarizing what he will expand on through the rest of the book. And that topic is godly living. How do we live in this world as God's children? How do we respond? How do we think? How do we act? What is our focus? What is our desires? And he's going to go through that. And he's going to go through reality. A good portion of Peter deals with suffering and, and the struggles we face. But here he's, he's opening up the topic to us. What does it mean to live for God, to have a godly life? How are we to interact with the world around us, the world in which we live? How are we to think and respond? And Peter has the answer to that here. And he's telling us or letting us know, letting the churches know what we must do. In other words, he makes no suggestion here at all. Instead, he's going to give clear direction. 
direction on our thinking and our acting. He tells us what our inner and outer life should be. Yet Peter is not approaching the churches as some distant general. He knows he's in a war, a spiritual war, but he doesn't come in as the commander. Instead, he says to them, dearly beloved, because these churches were dear to him, but that's not the depth of what that says. Uh, They are his brothers and sisters in Christ. They are God's children. But what he wants them to understand as dearly beloved is that they are loved by God. It's connecting them to God. As one writer notes, as beloved, they were objects of God's immeasurable love. So as Peter approaches the command that he's about to give, and it's, it's summarized in two points. Uh, when we have a meal after the service, I like to do two-point sermons because I don't want to go on too long. Um, so that's my casual way to mention we have a lunch afterwards, and we have plenty of chicken, and we hope that you'll stay. We'll be offended if you don't. Just kidding. But uh, we would love for you to stay. Uh, celebrating our anniversary as a church, eight years, but also a chance to fellowship. Uh, And it'll be right down the basement. We have Peruvian chicken coming uh, and all the sides and desserts that you all have made. And so we're excited about that. That's a little side note. Um, And I've lost my place. That was two points. That's right. I only have two points. Uh, And he's making two points. He's saying, I want your inner life godly and I want your outer life godly. I want your thinking right and I want your acting right. But before he dives into this, before he he prods them forward, he addresses them as dearly beloved and recognize that's in the middle of his letter that he's writing to these churches. It's not even at the beginning. Here he's just reminding them again that they are the object of God's love. He loves them as Christ would love the church, but he's trying to connect them to God, that God has immeasurable love for them. And then from that connection point, from this idea that they are the beloved, they are the object of God's affection, he says, I beseech you. And that word is, is not one we use often. And you might have a translation that says, I urge you, but that doesn't quite grab the, the weight of the word in Greek. And so it's really, I strongly urge you or I strongly appeal uh, to you to follow a certain behavior and attitude. And as one writer notes, we need to feel the force of his pen. We need to understand that the beseech is not a suggestion. There is weight behind that statement. You are God's beloved. God's poured his immeasurable love on you. Yes, Peter loves them, but he's connecting it all to God's love. And then he says, I strongly urge you, I push you forward. There's weight behind it. As God's beloved, we have a duty to obey the one who loves us. We are not to take his urgings as just a suggested possibility, but instead it's a prescribed action. And I just want you to see the weight behind what Peter is saying. He doesn't call them deliberately beloved to manipulate them, to coerce them into following, but instead wants them to understand the reality of who they are in Christ that they are his loved, that they are his church. And then he immediately connects that to this strong appeal for them to obey God. It is not a suggestion. It is a prescribed action. Yet I put here, what is he beseeching us about? Well, it's how we act and what we think. And he begins by addressing our inner life. That's verse 12. What are we thinking and desiring? So you're going to go to what your thoughts are, And what your desires are, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. 
And there's two words that will highlight abstain, which is keep away from. And then the having or the word is keeping your conduct right. So you're going to not do something and you're going to do something else. Uh, Peter calls on us to understand first and foremost our position. Who are we? And so he's connecting us. He says, we are strangers and pilgrims. He says, I beseech you, I strongly urge you. And then he gives this word, understand who you are in this world, strangers and pilgrims or sojourners and exiles or aliens and strangers. Uh, I put a note here. And, and if you don't know this by now, I'll, at least I'll let you know, my family's Dutch. Uh, we come from a Dutch background. As I tell Heather, oftentimes uh, I'm no mutt. Okay. I'm purebred Dutch. Uh, may not be the best breed out there, but at least I'm purebred, right? So, well, actually, let me restate that. It's definitely not the best breed out there, but at least I'm purebred, you know? So I joke about that because she'd always say, I have some Dutch blood in me. I'm like, yeah, it's all tainted. I tell my kids, you're 50% purebred, but 50% just a whole mix of things, right? Um, in the course of my life and my career, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of work in Holland. And so I've traveled in Holland extensively, but I wrote this note. When I visit Holland, I don't vote in the elections that take place there, nor do I get my cues from their government. I don't take my marching orders from their laws or their customs. Why? Because I'm not a citizen of the Netherlands. Instead, I get my cues and my regulations, my orders from the United States, because that's where I belong. I'm a U.S. citizen. Peter makes that connection to them but he does it at a much higher level. So when he speaks to the churches and to us, it's on a greater or more important level. He makes clear that we are not citizens of this world, but instead are foreigners in it. That has meaning. It's not just, hey, this world is not your home, which is a, it's a great song to remind us, but there is an application that ties to being a foreigner, to being a pilgrim, to being an exile. It means we do not take our marching orders from what is acceptable and expected in this culture. You are not directed by what this world has to say about it. You are not funneled to think a certain way because the world thinks that way. And if nothing will show you that our world changes its mind, just look at our culture, which has moved rapidly in the past five years or maybe even 10 years. Uh, it seems faster than it's ever done before. Culture changes its mind. You see it with a host of things. What once was the word they want you to use is now a word that speaks to hate and racism. In other words, our culture constantly changes its mind. Here's the reality as a believer. We don't get our cue from this culture. Our orders come from above, not from the sin-stricken world. But that doesn't mean this sinful world or our sinful nature goes peacefully into the night. No, we must after understanding our position, understand our reality, we have an enemy, fleshly lusts. R.C. Sprawl notes this, writing about this, he says, my life did not get complicated until I became a Christian. Uh, the context, he says, he says he can't stand hearing a TV evangelist speak and say, everything will go right in life, everything will be easy in life once you become a believer. All problems will be solved. He says, he, says, I get it. he, he wrote the word, I get impatient when I hear that. Um, and I, I mean, imagine R.C. Sprawl and Patient has a bit of, of fire and passion to it. So here is this man saying, I, I don't like that because he says, my life didn't get complicated until I became a Christian. Before I was a Christian, I did whatever I wanted. I went along with the group in the world. When I became a Christian, 
I knew the war between flesh and spirit in a new way. Satan has declared war on our souls. And we are engaged every day in a spiritual battle to maintain our integrity and our obedience to Christ. Peter is summing up in one word, fleshly lust, and we sometimes will get caught in this idea of immorality, but it's a broader picture than that. Galatians 5, 19 uh, through the first part of 21 describes in more detail what they look like. And they include more than immorality. Uh, Those verses say, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. As in, the list goes on for what our culture will push and will promote and what we will be tempted with. Because the reality is, and James makes it clear, is we're tempted when our own sinful desires take control because we do have a wrestling within ourselves, a sin nature, and there is a battle that is taking place. It is these that we are in combat with constantly that wage war against our souls. And that, by the way, speaks of a civil war. It's a battle within us. The fact is a war is taking place, and a war is not a skirmish or a battle. If you read some of the history about Native Americans and and the battles they fought with our military, one of the struggles they had to overcome is that they viewed a battle as the ending point, and we were fighting a long-term campaign. That's one of the reasons it overtook them. See, we're not in a simple little battle, a skirmish, so to speak, but This battle, this war that is being waged is a long-term campaign. These desires don't just fight periodically. Instead, they're terrorists that identify as such, never surrendering, never stopping. I was watching with the kids. It was a video on uh, history from Acts to Revelation. And the gentleman that was doing the video was describing uh, Spartan warriors. And it was interesting because... And I'm sure there's a host of TV things that have come up. But if you understood who the Spartans were from a child, you would walk barefoot so your feet were tough enough that you wouldn't need the sandals you had on. They grew dreadlocks because that made them appear fiercer and more intimidating. They had the helmets with the with the feathers on the top. And they explained why they did that, because they wanted to look taller Their armor was designed in such a way that, one, it could take a blow from arrow or from sword. One of the reasons the Greeks overtook the Persians is because they fought different. The Persians showed up shooting arrows at them, and it was clinking off their metal armor, and they just kept at it. Why? Because everything they did was committed to being and looking like a fierce antagonist. That is the approach of fleshly lust. They are in constant battle. They are geared up to wage war, a battle in which we are all engaged. I appreciate the whole book of Romans, obviously, but Romans 7, uh, Paul speaks of his own struggle in this, his own battle. I'm going to read some of the verses. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do allow not, for what I would, what I want to do, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, 
But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Everybody faces this war. Constant attack that is coming on us. But here's what's fascinating. Peter doesn't suggest that we only resist. He doesn't hint at success. Instead, he tells us to be victors. You see, we need to understand the command coming back to that central word. He says something. He says, abstain. And the word is not a suggestion. The word is a command. It means to keep away from, avoid. And it carries the idea grammatically, not to go into all the verb tenses, but grammatically the idea is that it's a constant or continual thing. What is Peter saying to the churches? You are not from this world. Don't get your cues from this world and from this culture. Don't follow what they say. Understand that your, your enemy is fleshly lust. I had written the enemy in us because the fact is it is this constant battle to do what the world says and we want to do what the world says. We desire it. And so it says, here is your enemy and this enemy is going to wage war against your soul and the words are perfect as they're worded in scripture. That's exactly what's happening. They're not throwing stones. They're not shooting darts. They are waging a war. They are terrorists attacking and attacking and attacking and attacking, never stopping. And then right before all that, he tells you to abstain. A command to abstain means that we can abstain. God doesn't give us a command that we cannot accomplish He says, I'm expecting you to abstain. God doesn't give us an impossible task to accomplish. Uh, For instance, if I were to tell Clayton to go build the fence around our garden, that would be impossible for him. I hate saying that to him because as many times as he's told me how to build a fence, uh, I'm assuming he thinks he can, but he can't, right? But if I tell Clayton to go climb a fence, he can most definitely climb a fence God has not called us to do something we are incapable of accomplishing. So coming all the way back to our central topic about godly living, godly living requires inner discipline. It requires fortitude of the mind and controlled desires. It requires an effort. We can have the victory, but that will not come from ignorance. We must understand our position. We're not citizens of this world, of this kingdom. We serve a greater kingdom. We serve Christ's kingdom. We are citizens of God's kingdom and as such can expect a war to be going on within ourselves, a war that is constant, but which we can clearly win and which we should win. But to do that, we need to capture our thoughts. We need to direct our desires, which will not happen passively. That's the thing. I wish it would. I wish I could just just sit down and open the Bible and start reading and suddenly all the wicked thoughts in my brain would disappear and all good thoughts would flow in. It just doesn't happen that way. To remove sinful thoughts, to capture them, will require that you replace them with godly thoughts. When God talks about having a mind that's geared to him, thinking his thoughts, he's not saying to you to have an empty mind. An empty mind will just get refilled with even more wickedness. You must fill it with thoughts that God would desire. You have to fill your mind with God's thoughts. You have to replace what is wrong with right thinking. To remove fleshly desires, 
which all begin in the mind, requires that you replace them with godly desires. So let's ask ourselves, what are we thinking about and what do we want and follow? And I want us to examine that closely. Make sure that what you follow aligns with where you belong. And you belong in his kingdom. You are his child. Make sure it's not just a Christianized version of this wicked world and its system. As you scan through churches now, what you'll find oftentimes is a polished version of the world. Sure, the rough edges are gone. It's not so abrasive. It's smooth. It'll fit in your pocket. But it's nothing but the world polished up. God is not asking or commanding us to think a polished view of this world, but instead is calling us to remove this culture and world and put his thoughts in there, to remove these desires and put his desires there. We're called the godly living, which begins in our inner life, but doesn't end there because Peter continues and, and maybe in, in whatever Bible you have, you, you see a period at the end of verse 11 and it starts verse 12. We have a tendency to break it up. This whole statement is one sentence in Greek. And Peter continues to look now at our outer life, which is verse 12. What are we doing or how are we acting? He says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And now Peter wants them and us to fully understand our role. As we look at how we think and what our desires are. And he starts there on purpose because it is going to be hard to act honorably, to live honorably, if we don't think correctly and if we don't control our desires. Because what you think about and what you want will be what you end up pursuing. It'll direct the course of your life. You can pretend only so long and so far that will be where you go. And so that's why Peter deals with this idea of right thinking, godly thinking and godly desires. And then he says, I want you to understand how you act in the world. So you're not some hidden person. Well, don't worry. I think right and my desires are right, but I do whatever I want in the world because, hey, in the world, you have to be the world. I've, I've heard Christians say that. They'll say there's some way here, but over here make excuses for their behavior saying, hey, that's not church. That's not what, that's not what God's wanting. Well, actually, what God wants is everything. God has not asked or demanded a part of you. He's asked for all of you. He wants your thinking and your life, inner life, and then he wants your outer life to reflect it. And it's going to look different. What are we doing and how are we acting? Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. In other words, your, your behavior has to be right. And then we understand that they're going to come and persecute us. But by what is done for Christ, it should bring glory to him. And so we have to understand our role, and our role is to be examples. Alexander McLaren commented about this. The world takes its notions of God, most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. And I want you to process that and think about some of the commands in the New Testament 
because we're supposed to be like Christ. Why is that? And you think about how God has orchestrated that because we are his ambassadors. What does that mean? We represent him here on earth. Why? Because the world looks at us and they are supposed to read Christ. They're supposed to see him. They're supposed to be driven to him. Regardless of how the world talks about us or acts against us, we are to live, and that word is to act or behave, in a way that points correctly to God. Our role is to promote his glory, and that's where we see the end. That no matter what they say about you, no matter what they may think, that that there is by your works, by what you do, by how you live, that they will glorify God in the day of visitation, not glorify you, not point to you, not be like, wow, now that's a good Christian. If all Christians were like that Christian, then I would be a believer. See, that's not, that's not glorifying God. See, that pointed to you and, and drew the attention to you. But see, if we are living the way we should, the honorable living, the honest living, then we will be pointing to him and it'll be about his glory. Our lives, how we act, respond, negotiate, work, should always be done in a way that contradicts the false claims against us and Christ and provides an avenue for our work to be used eternally in the lives of some of those who attack and accuse us. What's interesting is these claims that he's referencing actually are, are were accusations hurled against Christians. See, Christians were considered atheists. I know that sounds maybe funny to us, But because they didn't worship a pantheon of gods, they didn't worship the emperor, they were considered almost godless. One god, that's not even close to enough. And so they were hurled accusations against them about that. Uh, Later on in the Roman Empire, they're going to have tons of accusations come because they think that the whole defeat of the military came because Christians didn't worship the emperor or worship all the same gods. And so as they're hurling these accusations against them, they were to live in such a way that if someone truly was looking, if someone was really investigating, they would see Christ. They would see the gospel and they would glorify God uh, in the day of visitation. Uh, Because here's the reality. They will speak against you as evildoers. Uh, Christian apologist Wilbur Smith, and this is at the end of World War II, just to place this a little bit. He observed that the world has opposed Christianity ever since Jesus' day. And believers should not expect things to be different today. He says, at first, one would think that a religion which exalts and seeks to follow the only perfect and righteous man who has ever lived on this earth, who who never harmed anyone, whose words delivered from superstition and fear, whose works redeemed from pain and demons and death and hunger, whose life was a great shaft of light shot into the murky darkness of the Roman world. You would think that person... There's nothing to resist there, that they would have been welcomed with open arms. Never no opposition or attack or denunciation except from the demons of hell and Satan, who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. You would think if you looked at Christ and what he did. Because a lot of people love to paint him as this rebel and this revolutionary. And the reality is, is he came and he died as a suffering servant. He came and did exactly what Isaiah 53 talks about the Messiah doing. He healed the sick 
We talked about when we walked to the gospel. I just want you to picture this in your mind. He walks into a town and he heals everyone who is sick. Can you imagine that? Everyone in your family that is struggling is brought to Christ. And in this one point in time, a community that, studied, uh, that would be wrestling with a variety of problems. And just take our church and you think about our prayer list and, and, and the struggles that as a people we face, that we walk through. From diseases to affliction to whatever it may be. And can you imagine in one split second, you're healed of all that. That's Christianity. This is Christ coming. And, and what do they do? You think, wow, this, this, should, this should be an easy one. But that's not history, right? In fact, the New Testament from the records of the birth of our Savior all the way down to St. John's vision of the era of anarchy and persecution to come testifies in the most startling way to the fact that Christ himself was most viciously and constantly attacked, that his apostles suffered the same opposition, that it was predicted by these very apostles that Christianity would continue so to suffer down to the end of this age. What's the reality? They're going to speak against us as evildoers. You will be attacked. And Peter is saying in the midst of persecution, we are to respond and live in such a way that when they really looked at our life, they would see Christ and they would glorify him. And that glorify him in the day of visitation, uh, you can wander all over with that one. But the idea uh, really that comes to mind is think about this. If someone was to see your life and because of your life, God uses that and brings them to him and they're a believer, the glory that would be given when Christ comes. Yet in all that, we're to keep our living, our actions, honest or honorable or excellent so that his name and his gospel is clearly proclaimed because we need to understand our purpose. And, and Peter's really driving to the church here. And I want you to realize this, this forms a transition because he's going to talk about God to live and he's going to talk about sufferings and talk about the, the hardships that you walk through as a believer. And he wants them to understand why. And again, understanding our purpose and it ties directly to being an example and it's evangelism. Even though they hate and persecute, our purpose is to bring and proclaim the message of God's salvation, which is proclaimed not only in our words, but in our living. I've shared this example before. And uh, if you read any of the Voice of the Martyr stuff that comes out, and again, it doesn't mean that every theological position they hold is accurate, but as you read about people, and, and this story still affects me, it's about a guy in a, in a village. And we hear oftentimes the bombastic stories of execution, but he's, he's in a village. His village is, is Muslim and he's preaching the gospel. Men from the village would come beat him up every day, you know, punch him in the gut, punch him in the face. And he took it. When they hit his kid one time, he got upset and punched one of the guys back and then asked forgiveness for it. And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this. And, and kind of as I'm studying this, it starts coming to light in his mind. He wanted to have honest conduct. He wanted to live every ounce of his life for Christ. He wanted nothing that he did to take away from them seeing the truth of Christ. We proclaim him with our words and with our living. I'm going to close this 
based on this point, which is a two-point sermon, so it's almost wrapped up here, um, with another connection to World War II. I read recently of uh, Herb and Ruth Klingen and their young son, and they were in a Japanese war camp in the Philippines for three years. Uh, they were missionaries to that region and got caught up, American missionaries caught up and tied up into this uh, prison camp. Many of the prisoners were starved, tortured, and murdered during that time uh, by those in charge. And the worst person involved, and oftentimes from the top down, was the camp commandant, Kenoshi. Uh, toward the end of the war, he came up with an especially diabolical or wicked plan. Because obviously they're not feeding him a lot, but then he decided to increase their food. But he did it in rice that was still in its husk. Pele, they call it. But here's the, the thing about it is, is if you eat rice with the husk on, you die of internal bleeding within a couple hours. So imagine you're starving and more food comes on the table, but it's covered in husk. So the careless one would cook that up and eat it and be dead in a couple hours. I'm sure they know that because people did that. Yet there's no tools to get the husk off the rice. And so what they learned was if they would beat the rice and get the husk off, they would burn more calories than they would get by eating the rice. And you see how wicked the plan is, right? He's starving people to death and dumping extra food in there. Uh, thankfully and providentially, God spared the Klingons and those who remained because they were kind of liberated suddenly in February of 1945, which interrupted Kenoshi's plan to shoot all the prisoners. I want you to get a picture of how horrible this person was. It was years later that the Klingons learned that Kenoshi had been discovered working as a groundskeeper at a Manila golf course. He was put on trial for his war crimes and hanged for them. So he was executed for what he had done. Yet before his execution, he shared that he was now a Christian, stating that he was deeply affected by the testimony of Christian missionaries that he had persecuted. MacArthur notes this, effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. And when I read about a life in a prison war camp under a wicked and horrible person, and you realize that their testimony brought conviction ultimately in the lives of somebody. Now, he needed to pay for his crimes and what he had done. But for him to state, I was changed by the testimony of Christian missionaries that I had persecuted. So let's ask ourselves this. Could our conduct convict the lost world around us? Is it possible that your life can be used by the Holy Spirit to bring conviction? Could it be used by the Holy Spirit to reach a hateful and lost world? Or, and this is the big or, is our life so world and temporally focused it points only to the now, this culture, or to ourselves? Could my life live for God, convict the lost world around me, in closing, I just want to call us to be responsive to Peter's urging. Can I go all the way back to the introduction? Let's not mix a command with a suggestion. Peter has not suggested that you change your desires. And he's not suggested that you change your thinking. Instead, on the in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's given a, a clear and present command to abstain, keep away from, 
fight back. He tells us the battle. He's not, he's not secretive. Uh, these fleshly lusts will wage war on your soul. It is constant. Uh, and, and I use the word terrorist because that's how that's in our mind. I think that helps connect us to the fervor that it will have in attacking your soul. But he wants you to keep away in your mind and change your desires so that we are keeping or having a behavior in this world that though the world will persecute us, and they will, I hope we, can, we understand that. And I hate bringing that truth to light because I don't like the thought of that. I, I would much rather not have the thought of knowing the world will resist this. But knowing that they will speak against us as evildoers, yet by how we serve our Lord and Savior, they will be drawn to him. That the ultimate outflow of that would be they glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's not mix a command with a suggestion. Peter has beseeched us as foreigners here to live a godly life. It's going to require a disciplined inner life. It is going to shape our thoughts and desires, which will alter our outer life so that we are examples that point to God and his great salvation. So ask yourself this, am I thinking and acting biblically? Am I thinking and acting biblically? Or maybe the more pertinent question to ask ourselves is this. Do we even desire to think and act biblically? Let's pray together. Father, thank for the opportunity we have to come together to study your word, to dive in and hear Peter as he's been building uh, his letter, as the Holy Spirit's inspired him to write. He has covered our great salvation. He has showed us what we have in Christ, the amazing blessing uh, that is there, the assurance we know in Christ, no matter what we may think or what the world may say. He he points to the assurance we have in Christ, bringing this idea, uh, this truth to light in the churches that nothing will pull them away from their eternal life, from their Savior. And now he's turned the corner in the last verses, last couple verses to to help us understand how we should live and how we should act, what we should set aside, what we should focus on. And here in these verses, as he points to godly living, we're called in a very uh, weighty way to keep fleshly lust at bay, to recognize the reality of a battle, a war that we'll wage, to understand that we all will be engaged in it, but yet know that we can have the victory, to look at our lives and to change how we may act so that it aligns with what Christ would do. Where our rights might be stepped upon, yet how we respond to that should reflect our Lord and Savior. That what we do with our life, how we work, how we play, how we vacation, whatever it may be, that those things point to your glory, that those things are used as a light uh, to draw men to you. In your precious and holy name, amen.